0: As you know, we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the word of God and our purpose in that, of course, among others, is that we don't just sort of pick something and then try to find a couple of verses we could squeeze into our ideals of it, but rather let the word do the teaching. Uh, certainly, we're going to see a lot of that today. We are at verse 14. Read along with me, if you would, please. Now, when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his m- wife's mum lying sick with a fever. So he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and served them. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. That it might be fulfilled what was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, He gave a command to depart to the other side. And when Jesus saw a great multitude about him and did so, that a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father but Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. And you think, ah, well, let's pray and watch what God wants to do. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, thank you. For this bountiful feast in your word. Thank you for what you're going to do here today. But I pray your word would define your word. And that your word would burst open, come alive and color in the black and white for each of us today. That we get it, that we understand it in our heart of hearts, God, that our minds grasp it. But more importantly, that we allow you to plant within us your heart, your word in such a way. That our lives would be transformed. We pray if there be any who have yet to know the gift of your son, Jesus the Christ, that today they would not only understand that gift, but today they would receive it as well. I pray for those who have made claim, like myself, to know You. Who have accepted that gift of Jesus Christ. That today, Lord, we would do so much more than just simply make claim as a believer. But that today You would have Your way and make Your home in our hearts. And that we would make You our home. So, have Your way now, in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as I would any day. Please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. After a three-chapter classroom lecture, chapters 5 through 7, one of the greatest sermons ever spoken, the school of Jesus goes mobile. His students immediately learn that our King is always willing... And to the unclean and the unwelcome alike. And that's what we've seen. The religious leaders, on the other hand, would every day, thrice, thank God that they're not the unclean dogs or unwelcome Gentiles or unhonored women. Jesus makes his first three stops exactly that. He is not only infinitely able, but also unceasingly willing. But healing is never Jesus's intended end. And that can be a real revelation for most of us here. You see, Jesus' healings that he performs are a means to his intended end. If you remember with the leper, the first stop in Matthew 8, he tells him afterwards not to go and run out and tell everyone, but first go straightway and show himself to the priests as a testimony to them. This priest and his cleansing was to be a testimony even to the dead religious system around him. It was the centurion next that would show his student. Uh, Jesus' students, that is, true and great faith. And that his servant, the centurion's servant, would show what happens when you exercise that great faith properly. Now, Jesus heads to Peter's home. That's what we read here, at least in verse 14. It's to a sick mother-in-law. We see that here. But she will better not be sick for long because clearly company's coming. And that's what we see. So notice it says in verse 14, when Jesus had come into Peter's house. We have a reference here in Mark, the two Gospels that also tell us of this story, in Mark chapter 1, verse 29, and in Luke four thirty-eight. in comparative to this, that Jesus had just left the synagogue in Capernaum. There was a guy possessed there, and when Jesus came in, the guy freaks out. As he freaks out, Jesus casts the demon out with a word, and the people's response is, what new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And it says immediately his fame then spread throughout all the region around Galilee. So that's kind of where Jesus is. Is at this point he's making quite a bit of enemies. And, and there is quite a bit of rustle. And as there is sort of this rustle around things as people are stepping out of there, now we sort of see where Jesus goes and he heads from there into Peter's house. Now it tells us, by the way, it is the house of Simon and Andrew in Mark 1.29. And it also tells us it's with James and John. So at least four of these guys, if not more, are coming into the house. We do know that that will be the house, most likely, that by the next chapter the roof will get ripped off because a paralytic is going to be dropped in because we read it as the house. A specific article, the, is in we know the house already, and the only house we've known up to this point will be Peter's. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul will say in verse 15, do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, as also do the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, and Kephas? And Kephas is the Aramaic word for Peter. So let's start with this, before we even get into sort of what Jesus does, and it's obviously a fairly quick text. Figure this out with me. Jesus has just left the synagogue. And as he's left the synagogue, it's a pretty rough place. I mean, there are a group of people that are amazed. They're blown away because, to be honest, what happened in its simplest sense is somebody's life got changed and it happened in church. And for some reason, that was a strange thing. Think that through. We expected to go in, do our thing, pay our dues, whatever, you know, stand up and sit down, kneel down, fight, 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 whatever, at the end, cross ourselves, whatever, put a wafer in our tongue, say amen, and off we walked. And that was it. And but somehow this day was different because someone came in and it was pretty obvious they were in need and they left in a very, very different and better state. And we all look and go, wow, that is like unlike any church I've ever been to. In this case, a synagogue. But the unfortunate part about that is not everybody's really happy about it. You would think of all the people that would be happy about it, the religious leaders would be, don't you think? Except they had their own kingdom and this was threatening it. You see, they had their institution, they had their politics and they had their guys and and they had their men and, and they had their structures on how to get there. And if you weren't part of that, you just weren't in. And that didn't matter if you uh, were gifted. It didn't matter if you were brilliant. It didn't matter if you were anointed. The point was, to be honest, if you weren't part of their club and you didn't make it through their institutions and didn't go through their machines, you weren't in. And so this thing is quite threatening because they were the ones running the church that nothing ever happened in. So they were at a church where everyone kind of came in. They sat down, did their thing, and they left. And every, nobody was really ever changed. And then Jesus comes in and everything changes. So when Jesus leaves the synagogue, there are two very distinct groups of people. Jesus, if you will, has taken a lightning rod and driven a line between them. There are those that want things the way they were, dead, simple, stagnant, untouchable, doing whatever they wanted, but it wasn't making a real change. And then there were those that really just wanted to be revolutionized by Jesus, and that was clearly a different group. So Jesus is heading over to Peter's house and we read that Peter's mother-in-law is sick. That's what's clear. Now, for what it's worth, there are a group of people. There is a certain organization, religious organization, that in order to be a leader, I find interesting that in order to be a leader, you have to swear not to be able to be married and not to be able to ever have children And I only find that strange because the first person they found as their leader happens to be married, according to this text. But Peter, just the same, has a sick mother. And he's going to bring Jesus home anyways. But for a moment, I'd like you to consider all the reasons why not to bring Jesus home. First of all, there's sickness. And if there's sickness, it might be contagious. You don't want to get that. I mean, for goodness sakes, this is a sick place. We read ultimately that he's going to rise her up and it assumes as if she's been sleeping. At least that's the way it looks pretty clearly in Luke's gospel. And so I kind of get the idea maybe it was dark. It was a place they tried to keep dark for mom to sleep so she can get better. So it's a dark place. It's a sick place. More than likely, it's a mess. Jesus, you don't want to come here. Don't go to this place. It's dark and it's sick and it's it's a mess. And also, think of this. I kind of know, having read the text beyond this, when you read through the Gospels a couple of times, you kind of know what's coming. Like one of those movies where you kind of get excited when that scene's about to come because you're going to quote the verse and ruin it for everyone. And and, and you kind of get this idea that I know that they're going to tear up the roof and they get this idea it's like, Jesus, don't come to the house because if you come to the house, you're going to kind of tear it up. You're going to tear the place up. That's not going to be the same way. One thing's for, for sure, when Jesus shows up someplace, it just never, well, it never remains the same. What I find is interesting is that Jesus himself will say in Luke's Gospel, That when a spirit is driven from a house, using the illustration of a demon possessing a human being, that it goes and it searches through dry places. Now, it isn't like here a demon, everywhere a demon demon. You can go to those places. In some churches where everything's like a demon, it's like you had a salad and it had, you know, the tomatoes were bad and that's demonic or, I mean, it's amazing how you can find a demon under everything. Scripturally, that doesn't seem to be the case. We don't see anywhere in Scripture that Jesus seems to possess, or, I'm sorry, that demons don't seem to possess anything but people and pigs. So you can make that choice. Now, maybe your bacon could be possessed. That's up to you. But I do know this, that the, the, the reference is this, that, that there is a demon, that is, and he calls the person a house. And ultimately what he says is that when the demon is cast from the house, it looks for another place. And if it can't find one, it goes back, finds that the house is swept and in order, and it takes seven worse than himself. He says, I tell you, the condition of that house or that person will be worse than it ever was before. You see, it's not enough just to kind of get rid of the old and bad. have it swept in an order sounds like a lovely thing, and as far as the world is concerned, it is a lovely thing, but not according to God, because he created that house to be inhabited, and he created it to be inhabited by you. And first and foremost, for your permission to let him in, because it was created to be inhabited by him. Peter, by the way, at the end of his life, in Second Peter will say twice, I'm going to put off... This tent. See, what Peter kind of saw at the end of his life is, though it looked a lot like a house to other people, perhaps, Peter knew it was a temporary dwelling. Interesting, because it's the same one that will be used when it tells us in John chapter 1 that the word was manifested. Pitched its tent, literally, and dwelt among us. That God himself came and tented in human skin. We call him Jesus. That's pretty simple. But I'd like you to consider that for yourself for, for a moment. you got arms. you got faces. I could see you all seem to have faces with all two eyes apiece and a nose apiece and mouth and all that. You all seem to be relatively, roughly the same when it comes to Mr. Potato, Mr. Potato Head parts. But, but if you were to look at that, I want you to realize that this isn't you. This is a tent. And there are people that talk about having a soul. And I love the idea that we don't have a soul. We are a soul. We just have a tent. We're a soul with a tent we can spend all of our life investing in our tent, but sooner or later you're going to check out of the tent, like it or not. Sooner or later the tent's going to collapse and the pegs ain't going to hold up anymore. It wasn't intended to be a permanent dwelling. It was intended to be temporary. So please hear me on this, because we live in a world that caters to the tent. Everything's trying to make the tent look like everything, and it would be if it wasn't the fact that you had a soul. And the reason I say that is this is so much more than just Jesus Inviting Jesus over to my house for dinner. What about this house? Would I be willing to invite Jesus in here? And perhaps the excuses might be the same. But Jesus, it's dark in there. But Jesus, there's sickness in there. But Jesus, you don't understand. It's a mess in there. Maybe that's exactly the reason why you need to invite him in. Because instead of saying, God, don't go in here because it's a mess. What becomes really clear, even up to this point, is Jesus just dealt with a leper and a centurion. He doesn't seem to have a problem with unclean. And he doesn't seem to have a problem with unwelcome, like a centurion. Jesus is really unfrightened by your mess. He's unchallenged by your weakness. And he's unintimidated by your filth. I like that. The question today really isn't just, are you willing to make Jesus your homeboy? The question today isn't just, are you willing to kind of walk with Jesus and kind of hang out? Ultimately, what we see is, are you willing to let Jesus make a home where he wants to be home? And that is here in this tent of yours. Because that's what God wants. So understand something here. When Peter invites Jesus over, it seems pretty. Now, I don't know whether Peter is aware of the fact that his mom is sick, but it's pretty evident by this point, once they get in the door, it is. And so it tells us, by the way, that when he was invited into Peter's house, it says he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. Now, Luke, the doctor in Luke 4, I think it's 38, tells us that it was a high fever. And that's an important phrase, by the way, and a doctor would be wise to tell us that, because you're probably aware of the fact that your body has this amazing defense system to fight, well, to fight malagens, to fight pathogens in your body. And part of it, by the way, is it has all of these these sort of cells that are sort of, if you will, beacon cells, harbinger cells, and they send antibodies and they send white blood cells. And and one of the other things they do, by the way, is when something starts to win, it starts to heat things up because some of those diseases do not fare well under greater heat. And God knew that. So he invented your body in such a way. What a fever is, is that something inside of you is starting to win. And because it's starting to win, your body is trying to even the score by heating it up, shutting it down. Isn't that awesome that God did that? But what that means is. And when your body gets, when it gets hot, it's clearly fighting something. When it gets really, really hot, what it says is that the body knows that it's really throwing a last ditch effort. And you know it can get, your body can get so hot, it starts to destroy all kinds of things. You start to hallucinate. You could start to get brain damage. It's pretty rough. Because sooner or later, there are other parts of your body that aren't actually able to function at that heat. So, what Luke tells us is this woman is not just dealing with A flu. This woman has some form of infection now that's going to take her out unless somebody intervenes. Lo and behold, thank you for bringing Jesus home. It tells us that they tell her of her at once in Luke, by the way, in the same verse, 438. And now what happens is Jesus comes over and it doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal, does it? What it tells us here, by the way, now, is it just says that he touched her hand. As he touched her hand, The fever left her and she arose and and served them. Now, I I want to develop that for a second because it's actually infinitely deeper and more beautiful as we dig into this. As this word of God that we read manifested, by the way, pitched its tent. The the word, by the way, skenahu in the Greek, uh, in John 1.14. That God incarnate now in the tent has made his way into the house of Simon Peter. And what it tells us here is he touched her hand, stop. Jesus clearly could have not had to do that. He could have clearly said it with a word. We saw that with a centurion. Do you realize that, again, it takes me to the beginning of the chapter, once Jesus has left this chapter's 5-7 through seven seminar, this Sermon on the Mount, the first thing he did was show, through reaching out and touching a leper, that he was willing. That was the point of it, because the man said, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reaches out his hand and touches him, unintimidated by his leprosy unafraid of his uncleanness because most holy overcomes and trumps filth. And I see Jesus doing the same here with this person. The only difference is this is a woman. Do you realize how uncultural this is? A rabbi, an itinerant preacher who goes from place to place and now is reaching out and touching a foreign woman? Now, I don't know if you know this, but in public, now this is in a house, so it's different, but in public, a man was not allowed to speak to any woman in public, not even his wife. His children were handled by his wife, other than his mother. Because, you know, you don't want to mess with mom, I guess. In this particular situation, Jesus is reaching through a lot of different cultural boundaries, and he's actually touching, and notice where he touches her, he touches her on the hand. And it's so matter of fact in the way we read it. But yet, hear me in this for a second. It tells us that the fever left her. The word left, by the way, is a very important word in Scripture. And you're going to want to know it. The word in the Greek is the word "aphiemi." Can you try that word? "aphiemi"? That's good. Try that again. But this is Greek, so you have to be like, afiemi. Good, good. That's good. Afiemi. Greek. It means, by the way, because all the words come from Greek words, you know. Anyways, it means to abandon. To cast away and abandon, or in this case, literally just to abandon. Why is that so important? Because it is the word that is almost always translated, forgive. When we read, by the way, in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word forgive is afiemi. See, what he does is he doesn't just cast off our sins, he has them abandon us. We abandon it. They are forever forsaken. The guilt, the handwriting of requirements, all abandoned because they were paid in full at the cross. There's the beauty. So get the idea here. Do we ever expect this fever to return? Not according to the word. The word is that once and for all this fever and whatever caused the fever was gone. It forsook an abandoned mom man. And as it did, so does your sins. So does the guilty verdict when you stand before God. It's abandoned. Never to return. Isn't that good news? Now, you can invite that back in. Would you imagine how dumb it'd be? Like, imagine if mom, the first thing she did is went back over to try to figure out how to get that disease again. Wouldn't that be the goofiest story you ever read? But isn't that kind of our story sometimes? God does this gift in our life this miracle and then we go back to try to find the filth that he cleansed us from how insane is that but see it isn't just that so he took her by and by the way they will tell us in look that he took her by the hand and actually lifted her up but what we see is he took her by there and he touched her hand the fever left her and notice it says and then she arose i like this word by the way the word is a girl and girl by the way is the same word that is used Worthworth in Matthew twenty eight thirty two, Mark sixteen, fourteen, Luke twenty four, thirty four, and John twenty four, 21, 14, and all of the cases about Jesus' resurrection. And I get the idea that this woman at the throes of death now has been resurrected and in such a way, not the same, not dead, she wasn't dead, but as a hint of what's yet to come with Jesus. And what Jesus did is he touched her so that the thing that was killing her abandoned her. And then she was raised a whole new person now. You kind of get where I'm going with this, right? Because it's exactly what he did with you if you said yes to Jesus. But for that to happen, well, you got to invite him in the house. So it tells us, and by the way, that's not the end. And I, might, I remind you that it said that Jesus' healing was never his end. It was the means to his end. The end was to bring people to him. So it tells us that because she arose, she arose a different person. The person she arose now was a diakonos. We get the word deacon from it in the church. Diakonos means to attend to or to run an errand. It literally comes from the word diakos, which means to run an errand. So when someone says, don't mess with me, I'm a deacon, tell them to get you a donut. Because that's what it means. So Jesus touches her. The fever abandons her. She is risen. And she becomes a servant. And she better get ready because company's coming. That's what we're about to see. Now, please hear me in this for just a quick moment as we kind of move around to the tw- towards the end of this text and move to the second portion. Jesus has a habit of entering people's houses. It tells us, by the way, that Jesus offered to enter into the centurion's house. But the centurion said he wasn't worthy. So Jesus spoke a word. And if Jesus had entered, and in the same way as if he had, there was healing. Matthew will read in the next chapter, Matthew, the writer of this gospel, Matthew 9, 7, that when Jesus enters Matthew's house, there will be repentance. In Luke chapter 19, verse 9, it will be actually one of, if you will, Matthew's type bosses. Zacchaeus, down now in Jericho, one of the major tax stations, by the way. And Zacchaeus, by the way, we read when he actually invites Jesus to his house. And it actually seems like Jesus says, follow me. You can see Zacchaeus going, where are we going? You can see Jesus going, we're going to your house. Zacchaeus will do more than just show repentance. He'll actually offer to pay back, by the way, to the letter of the law, the extension of what he had stolen. And then Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. And when Jesus comes into the house, there is healing. And when Jesus comes into the house, there is repentance. And when Jesus comes into the house, there is salvation. In Matthew 9, it'll be a a synagogue leader named Yerus, whose daughter, by the way, was at the throes of death. By the time Jesus arrives at his house, she's dead. And apparently long enough to hire the wailers, the people, the professional criers who are now at a place where they're weeping because their daughter, this woman's daughter, is dead. And out of respect for that, people come and cry. So when Jesus shows up and says that she's not dead, she's only sleeping, they scorn him, they mock him for good reason. Because in essence, it's like, how could you be so heartless as to say such a thing to a grieving mother? But when Jesus comes into that house, there is life. And ultimately, Jesus will come into his own house in Matthew 21. And he'll come there to be cast out to die. And when Jesus comes to his own home, there is atonement and redemption. Now let me ask you, are these things you're looking for? Or are these irrelevant things to you? I mean, in essence, are you just kind of busy just trying to make sure that your tent is still maintained? It's looking as good as it can. The flaps are solid. The pegs are strong. The ropes are upright. Are you making sure that that tent looks good? So that when people go by, they forget it's a tent. They think, boy, that thing's going to be there a long time. Look at how nicely it's constructed. Look at how strong it looks. Look at how good looking that thing is. So they can admire the tent. But Jesus had told us at the end of that that sermon in chapter 7, that if you just hear what he says and don't do it, you're like a man who built a house, but you built it on sand. I mean, worse than a tent is a house because it looks enduring. But at the sign of a first storm, it caves in. So please hear me for a second. Jesus goes into this house. and When he goes into this house, the sick become servants and the house becomes a hospital. Notice what it says next. It says, and by the way, you, know, you can get the idea. Jesus, come into my stagnant, dark, filthy, sick place. Just don't leave it that way. I get that. It says in verse 16 that when evening had come, they brought to him, women, they, 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 they. Classic Greek grammar structure that they should ref- reply to the last antecedent or the last pronoun. And notice, by the way, the last one in verse 15 is it says that this woman... Peter's mother-in-law rose up and served them. Them would be Jesus and the disciples. I get the idea. The disciples now went out and got everyone they could, but it wasn't just them. It tells us, by the way, that those anyone who had sick with various diseases brought them to Jesus. That's Luke four forty in the parallel text. By Mark one Mark one thirty three, when it tells us of this story, it tells us that the whole city was gathered together at the door. So you can imagine, Mom, you might not want to be sick for long. Companies coming. Who? Oh, the entire city. Imagine, if you will, in a place like this. You come in and you're tired and you're feeling dark and filthy and confused. And people might not see it because the outside of the tent looks pretty darn nice, but you know what's inside where it really matters. But could you imagine what would happen today if the Lord really took that tent over? Not just one person, but the whole city being affected. Could you imagine? Could you imagine all of London being transformed because you let him do that in you? Because it isn't the quality of the tent. It's the strength of the occupant that matters. And when he comes to move in, that's all that matters. So it really doesn't matter who you are, to be honest. And I don't mean that in any uncaring way. You could be young, you could be old, you could be weak, you could be strong, you could be educated or otherwise, full of all kinds of social strata or not, being being somebody who can brilliantly put together, you know, pie to its 18th or 28th or 64th number, or somebody who still has to work through tying your shoes. In the end of it all, you're a tent, and that tent wants to be used by God to transform this city and this city, if you agree with me, I'm fully convinced, is in desperate need of it. And we're going, but God, I can't do it. And God's like, I never said you could do it. I'm asking for your tent. Will you let him come home? And you. So when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon possessed. Could you imagine? A moment ago, you were dying with a sick fever, a high fever. And you open the door and they're like, Bleh! And you're like, wow, it's going to be an interesting night. And then the whole city shows up. So imagine the disciples start showing up, and they're bringing every crazy, every wacky person they could get their hands on. Isn't Camden a great place for that? You won't have to go far. If you can actually make it ten minute, make a ten minute walk without finding a guy like this, that's almost as much of a miracle as bringing the guy to Jesus. And if this is, by the way, again in Luke one thirty three, the whole city showed up, and it says in Luke four forty that he laid hands on every one of them and healed them. Jesus could have just said. I say, be well, all of you, like one of those kind of wacky movies where they're trying to make Jesus look like some kind of just on an inch away from really weird, you know. And he's got his hands start to shake and he's like, no, you know, and it's like somehow in it, you kind of know he's going to break into King James. But really, in the truth of it, Jesus was somebody very, very approachable. But what's amazing to me is that Jesus didn't just open the door and go, watch this, you guys. Wow. You know, like one of those TV ministries and everyone just falls over because he waves his coat. But but yeah, you know, and it's like everyone's like, oh, I feel you know, I mean, he could have done that, but he didn't. And you know why he didn't? Because that's not Jesus's style. You know what Jesus's style is? This is Jesus's style. That's Jesus's style. This is Jesus's style. Not whoa, whoa, whoa. That's just not Jesus's style. That's Elvis's style. And he died and he's still dead. Maybe you think you see him, but he really is dead. I'm sorry to pop your bubble, and there's no Easter Bunny. Anyways, so follow me on this for a second. Jesus, the door opens. Mom is well, and she's serving at the house. And as she's serving at the house, Jesus has a whole city full of people, and he's going to touch every person in need, every person. So how long do you think that took? You might say, well, it depends on the size of the city. Well, let's just make it simple. Let's just say it was 1,200 people. How long would it take for you to go and touch 1,200 people? Let's make it, but let's make a, a little fun to it. Some of them are possessed. Do you think it's going to be easy? That's like catching a rabbit. You know, it isn't like they're going to go, oh, please, just go ahead and touch my shoulder. You know, I mean, you, you know, you get the idea here. It's like that's a really fun crowd. And this is what happens in your life. You ever wonder, you give your life to Christ, and all of a sudden it seems like the craziest people that ever existed on the planet show up. And I'm not just talking about here at church. And you go like, how in the world, where did that crazy person come from? And God's like, you know why? Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. All of a sudden now, you actually have the answer. And you're like, but I'm so afraid because I don't have all the answers. Yeah, you're right, but you have the answer. So can you imagine Ana goes to the doctor. This is hypothetical. I have no inside information. Ana goes, Ana goes to the doctor, and the doctor's like, yeah, because, you know, she goes into the and and he's like, yeah, you know, yeah, how are you? Yeah. And she tells him, and he's like, oh, well, you know, it's, 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 you're going to need this jab," you know, yeah. And she's like, well, first, before you give me that jab, how much bat guana was deposited in the caves of Chile by the Chilean fruit bat? And he kind of looks and thinks, What kind of lunatic even says such a question? She's like, well, answer my question. And imagine if he's like, well, I have no idea how much poop is deposited by the Chilean fruit bat in the caves of Chile. She's like, well, then you clearly are not qualified to give me this jab. He'd look and go, well, it sounds like you need two jabs. One because of your dementia and one for your real problem, right? And, and you, the reason I say that is we get so fearful when we want to talk to someone about Jesus because we're afraid they're going to ask us a question we can't answer. But we have the answer. There's the problem. And they're like, who is Cain's wife? And you're like, who cares? She was married. Why would you be interested anyways? Well, what about the Inquisition? How old do I look? Do I really look like do I do? I even look Spanish was the inquisition well what about that crazy person or that person what do you think i know everyone do you think the pope invites me over for a meal the point is simple i have the answer and when someone wants to divert and ask other questions you're like that is so irrelevant to the point are you going to let jesus come and make his home and you are not you're like but i have problems and you're like yeah that's a good reason to invite him in But I don't understand everything good. That's a good reason to invite him in. But I don't get all this religious stuff. It seems to be a real problem. Yeah, Jesus would agree with you. Sounds like you guys are going to have a really good talk once he comes in. What you'll find is the same thing. You have a problem with chances are so does he. And so what happens is the whole place, and he goes and he touches every one of them. I love my Savior for this. Because it wasn't just like, all right, those of you who made it close, I'm going to touch, but the rest of you, I'm going to have to do that coat thing. You know, He just doesn't do that. Aren't you thankful? But, here, but, but notice, by the way, Jesus isn't into an easy sell here. And by the way, Matthew uniquely quotes a scripture, and it is a really important scripture. By the way, it says, when evening had come, which tells us this is the time when Jesus should be resting. Oh, no, no rest for Jesus. They brought to him all who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word. He doesn't even allow them to speak because they know who he is, and he doesn't need their PR. You ever have people like that? It's like, you know, hey, you're the worst PR I could have. And it was certainly a demon would be. And healed all who were sick. And verse 17, it says, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying... He took our infirmity. he himself took our infirmities, satanea, and it says, and bore our sicknesses, our nostos. Now, perhaps you're familiar with that verse, perhaps you're not familiar with that verse. But it is one of the most important chapters in all of Scripture. 721 years before Jesus ever was born on the planet, ever actually took up that baby tent that will grow into an adult tent, There was a promise written in the book of Isaiah. This chapter is such a heavy chapter, such a clear indication of who it is, that it is called in the Hebrew, haparek hasur. Haparek hasur means the forbidden chapter. Though to this day they will read through the entire Torah every year, and then begin again, and they will read through the prophets every year, and then again they will skip this chapter because they call it haperek hasur the forbidden chapter does that just peak a part of you thinking oh i want to look at the forbidden chapter ooh i don't know if i should be playing into that but let's do it anyways it's isaiah 53 if you have your if your, your bibles it's actually fairly simple you close your bibles up you open right in the middle chances are you'll hit psalms Then go to the right, the next big book. There will be a few in between, but the next big book will be the book of Isaiah. Go to Isaiah chapter 53, please. Now, there are some that would say that this is so hot to the point that it couldn't possibly have been written before Jesus. Some would say, oh, we don't really have a copy of Isaiah, which, by the way, is a lie. People need to do their homework. First of all, it was translated into Greek 400 years beforehand by uh, what we call the Septuagint, by the way. When Alexandria, Egypt ordered a copy of every book ever written, translated into Greek for their Alexandrius library, library. But also, some of you are familiar with the discovery in the recent uh, 30 years of the Dead Sea Scrolls, of which there is an entire extant copy of the entire book of Isaiah, Yeshua, as it would be said. And this is what it says in chapter 53. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness that when we see him, no beauty that we should desire him. Ladies, do you realize what that means? He was not buff and he was not cute. So you can throw away those surfer pictures of Jesus, you know, with the deep blue eyes. that's kind of like, hello, like, like somehow related to Fabio or something like that. He wasn't, he had no stately form or majesty, which means he wasn't buff and he had no beauty that we should desire him. And why? the question is, why? Because beautiful people are unapproachable. People are intimidated by beautiful people. Ugly people are not. That sounds terrible, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, the simplest truth is, people don't have a problem approaching ugly people. Do you realize only one person on the planet ever could pick their tent? And the one who did picked an ugly one. Would you pick the one you have? Maybe you would. I look around. I think maybe some of you would. I wouldn't. Mine would have lasted longer. Mine is finding gravity in very unpleasant ways. But I will say this. Jesus chose. He chose to be approachable. No, stately form means he also wasn't very tall. He had no gold plate above his head. He wasn't eight feet tall. He didn't float when he walked. And he didn't have the angels sing when he spoke. Because if it were the case, Judas Iscariot would not have to go and say, the guy I kissed, that's the one you arrest. He would have said, look for the floaty guy and with the gold plate on his head that's eight feet tall. And wait till he speaks, angels will sing, get that guy. It would have been easier. But clearly, I know this is going to be probably, you know, revelationary for some of you, but he pretty much, I would have guessed he looked like, A Jewish person. Matter of fact, he probably looked a lot like a lot of other Jewish people. And just to make it even more fun, he had one of the 11 most popular names of the day. Joshua, Yehoshua, as we say Jesus in the Greek and then, of course, in English, was actually as common, if you will, as someone like John or Tom or David in our fellowship, David or Daniel in our fellowship. Imagine, it's like, yeah, he was the white guy named David from England. Huh. Should be easy to spot. But notice what it says in verse 3. He was despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as it were, we hid were our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. And then the verse that Matthew quotes. Surely he has born, and the word there is the word Nassau. Can you say Nassau? Nassau, like the, you know, place Nassau. Nassau is the Hebrew word for forgive. And it means, it should be easy to remember, Nassau, and it means to lift off. Wouldn't that make sense? Nassau, lift off. There you go. Surely our, he has born, or lifted off, our griefs chali, by the way, the word means sickness or disease. And carried chabal, or thabal, bear a load, drag oneself. Our sorrows, machob, pain, whether it be physical or mental or spiritual, our sorrow. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgression, bruised for our iniquities. <clears throat> the chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. Stop for a second. That verse gets crazy taken out of context. Because what people love to say is, well, since Jesus paid for my sickness, I never need to be sick. But look at what it was that he was punished for. In verse five, he was wounded for our transgression, bruised for our iniquity, the chastisement of our peace. Our reconciliation with God was upon him. What needed to happen? Our iniquities in our transgressions kept us from being at peace with God. What Jesus healed with his stripes was not our physical tent, but more important, he healed the occupant inside that tent. That's the point. And if you want, you can say, well, I'm just going to claim it. I'm just going to claim it by his stripes. I'm healed. And, you know, I have people that that I know are like dying. They're ill. But even in being ill, they're like, I just know Jesus has healed me. I'm waiting for my, my healing to be actuated. I, you know, if that was actually and that kind of concerns me. Have you ever heard anyone tell you something like that? That's kind of like saying, look, like, I've paid for it years ago. I'm just waiting for the product to show up. How soon before you actually start checking to see when it comes in the mail? You start checking the tracking on it. The reason is, hey, I would like a great tent. No doubt. I'd like a great tent. But more important than the tent is the permanent dweller that lives inside. And this guy that lives inside this tent. That's the one that needs to be healed. Because, truth be told, if the outside was doing well but the inside was messed up, the outside's going to get messed up really quick, anyways. And it's like if you fix the car but the driver's still a maniac, you're going to be fixing the car every day. The driver needs to get fixed. And what's, what Isaiah is telling us, by the way, is that. The word healed, by it means to be made whole, is that we were incomplete. And the only way we're going to be complete is for this tent to have its proper occupant, which, by the way, is God. Verse 6, it tells us, because we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one to our own way or to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent. He opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. Who will declare his generation? He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of his people. He was stricken. They made him a grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It, was put to, it, says, it has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. And he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his day. It will the pleasure of the Lord, it shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion among the great." And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with transgressors. And He bore the sins of many and made intercessions for transgressors. The whole chapter was this. We were sinners, full of iniquity, filthy and dirty, but God had this person, this individual, choose to take all of that upon himself. And as he took it upon himself, he picked it up off of us and he carried it upon him. He says, I'll take that. But he didn't just carry it aimlessly. He carried it to the cross. He carried it to the place of sacrifice. And there he made the sacrifice for every one of us. That's the point. So you can see why it would be forbidden, because it clearly speaks of Jesus. When Matthew tells us back in our text, and let's go there to close this up. We have a couple quick issues and we'll shut this thing down. What he makes really clear is, is that this chapter in in Isaiah clearly points us to Jesus because he tells us that it would be fulfilled. How was it fulfilled? The right person who actually steps into this role does it, and that right person is Jesus. So that Hapadakh Hasur, that forbidden chapter is unforbidden for us because it's clearly Jesus who's lived it out. So, you would think that would be easy. Case closed. Will Jesus come and make his home in your tent? Will you let him? He tells us he stands at the door and knocks. As he's desiring to be in. The only thing left is whether you're willing to let him. But then we have these couple quick verses to close this point up. Jesus saw the great multitudes about him, it tells us. And he gave, this is verse 18. And he gave a command, by the way, then depart to the other side. Jesus is trying to get away. Now, I remind you, the entire city has shown up and he's healed every one of them. But I also remind you, healing was not his intended end. It was the means to the end of them coming to him for salvation, to be made right and healed as we see in Isaiah. That's the problem. Some people just want to come to Jesus for a quick fix. They want a quick touch. That's it. Jesus is like, that is not what I'm here for. And we would love God to heal our 84-year-old grandmother. And we would love God to give strength to this person. so forth. But sooner or later, I'll tell you, if I get that old and things start falling off of me, just pray that I die quickly and painlessly. How's that? Because I know where total healing is. And the inside guy has been healed. And I'll be ready to go and claim my permanent home. This tent, one thing's for sure, when it gets cashed in, nobody else is going to be able to live inside it. But we have these two interesting stories right in the middle of it. Jesus is on his way, by the way, to the greatest storm that these um, that his students have ever seen. We'll know that by the way that we act. And yet, we have a certain scribe and one of his disciples, and each of them says something. Here's what the first says. Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. No matter where you go, I'm going to follow you. And you would seem like Jesus would be like, yippee, yay. But he does not Instead, so he plays hardball with them. And He says, foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Why in the world would he tell a guy like this? And then we get to the next one, and we go, "Oh, dang, that's even worse." Well, hear me on this. First of all, if the Bible were to define the Bible, which I think is the best place to go, what does the Bible say about foxes? Well, contrary to what the world says, what can we learn from the world about foxes that they say, "A ga ga ga, gaka-go!" anyways. But what the Bible says is in the Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 15, the foxes spoiled vines because they're thieves. In Lamentations 5.18, they, were, they dwell in places where clearly there is desolation. In Ezekiel 13.4, he compares false prophets to foxes. But when Jesus trash talks, how many times in Scripture does Jesus call someone a name? ever thought that through? Did he ever call Peter a name? Well, maybe. Get behind me, Satan. But that's, you, know, you definitely don't want to be called that. But where he just calls someone a name, the only person in Scripture is Herod, the beheader, if you will, of John the Baptist. And he says, go tell that fox. Well, what do we know about foxes? Foxes are thieves. They kill your chickens and they steal your cats. We know that. We have them here. Well, what about birds? Birds of the air, by the way, we would think that's such a pretty thing, but not really. In Deuteronomy, God says, if you want to disobey me, Deuteronomy twenty-eight twenty-six, 26, it says your carcasses shall be food for the birds. And Isaiah 7, I'm sorry, in 1st Samuel, actually, chapter 17, verse 44, it tells us when Goliath is taunting David that I will take your flesh and feed it to the birds of the air. In 1 Kings 21, when the prophecy speaks by the way of Ahab and his wife, it says whatever dies in the city, the dogs will eat. Whatever dies outside of it, the birds of the air will have. Even in Revelation chapter 19 towards the end, it tells us that the birds of the air were filled with the flesh of the carcasses that were laid out in the field. So what do we have? We have that that feeds on death, and we have thieves. They're both thieves, by the way, because by the time we get to Matthew Matthew 13, Jesus will speak about, so we're going to sow some seed. Do you remember that? And it tells us the first thing he says is that the birds of the air come and steal the seed, which he tells us is the word of God. So put this together for a moment. First of all, the first portion of this is about what happens when you invite Jesus home. Jesus, come and make your home here. Well, I want to warn you, there will be healing. The house is going to get torn up, but it's going to become a hospital for others. There will be no more darkness. There will be no more filth, no more stagnation. I'm going to change it. Are you you willing to let me do that? Or you just want it the way it is. Let that shack just erode into nothing. Well, now it's the other side around. Jesus, I'll follow you. And Jesus says, well, let me warn you. This world can't be your home. If you're gonna make your home in here, I'm gonna have to make my home in you. There's the problem. No, he says, no, what is a, what is a hole for a fox? It's his home. What's a nest for a bird? It's his home. And he goes, this world is a place for those that feed on death. This home is a place for thieves. That's their home. This is all they have. That's it. He goes, but if you're gonna follow me, you need to, you're gonna need to realize you can't. You'll never really, really be at home here on Earth again. Not at least if you're trying to make the Earth your home. I, I get it, but that's not very settling. But it is if you, someone's trying to soft sell you, Jesus, and say, oh, Jesus just wants to be your Savior. And he just wants to give you a little warm fuzzy. And if you just kind of let him in, you're going to be fuzzy. you going to feel fuzzy. Well, it's more than fuzzy. I don't want to feel fuzzy. If I want to feel fuzzy, I'm going to shave. I don't want, what I want is to be transformed. And if I want to be transformed... Well, then Jesus says, it's going to be more than me just moving inside you. It's going to be about you living inside me. And that's exactly what Jesus will teach in John 14 through 16. I and you and you and me. Well, okay, so I get it then. Okay, so I'm going to look and I'm going to you you do this. You give your life to Christ and you look around and go, wow, this world looks very different than it used to. The same party that looked like an opportunity now looks like a place to go. Ooh, man, that's I don't want to want to be there. I see danger in that now. I didn't before that just looked exciting. It's amazing how we see things differently. It's amazing how we see a liar that we wouldn't have seen before, because before we wanted to hear what they had to say. Now we realize it's a lie. So then what about the second thing? So then, by the way, that was a scribe. That was a guy that his whole job was to, to actually write commentary on Scripture. Now it's another one. Now it's a disciple. It's a student of Jesus. That's all a disciple is. It means it's a student. And he says, hey, so I'll follow you. But first... Let me go bury my dad. And Jesus is like, this your dad? Poor dad. He's lying on his deathbed. Just let him croak. Who cares anyways? That's not it at all. Because if that were it, I kind of wonder, what in the world is Jesus saying? But follow me on this for a quick moment, and we'll close this up. Let's say I have two sons. Jeffrey and David. Of the two, David's going to be my oldest. Because look at the two of them. He clearly looks younger. Older. How did that work? Anyways. Okay, so let's say, okay, I have two sons. David's my older. Traditionally, what that means is is that I'm going to break my inheritance into three parts. The oldest son gets an extra part. So two sons, that's three parts. One apiece, and then that third part. So if you think about it, that means David gets two-thirds of the inheritance. Why? Because a burial is really important. By the way, it is in a lot of parts of the Mediterranean to this day. But certainly among the Jewish people to this day. So this is what happens. The problem is in Israel, there's not a lot of space. It isn't like we can lay people out. I mean, here in England, by the way, it's like you can always tell a graveyard. All you have to do is look for a church. That's what I've kind of noticed. And it's like you're walking on like Great Uncle Earl or something on the way to church. I mean, we were in York the last couple of days. It is amazing how it's like. I, I don't know about that. The idea of well, anyways. It's, um, I'm getting way off that. So follow me on this. Okay, so I really want to make sure I'm buried properly. So we have, like, say, a family plot. But the family plot isn't going to just have this big, long, big, tall, nasty thing that I am. This tent, When this tent gets retired, it should consolidate. So what happens is David knows that. The day that I die, both of my boys get one portion of their inheritance. For Jeffrey, that's all. Sorry, bro, that's all you get. On the other side of it, David gets that one portion, but the other portion I kind of... uh, uh, I hold away from him because he's got something to do. So what David does is he puts me in a thing called a sarkafikas. Perhaps you're familiar with the term. Sarkh means flesh. Fikas means to munch. So it's a flesh muncher. And all it is is a big stone coffin. But it isn't one that he owns. There's a couple of them, by the way, that people rent, basically, is how that works. So, if you will, it's roughly about the size of this pew, if you will. Not that in any way I'm trying to relate the two. But in that, and what happens is he puts me in that thing for a year. Why a year? Because that's about as long as it takes for all of my flesh to be munched. By the time that year is done, what's left then, of course, is my bones and dental records. Now David could take all of me and put me in a smaller box called an ossuary, or we would say a bone box. You see them all over Israel and other places in the world. They're now roughly the size. Of the, all they have to be is longer than my longest bone and wider than my widest. Longer than my longest bones, my femur, wider than my widest, that's my skull. So at that point then, all of those pieces fit into this. David puts that piece properly in the, in the, uh, in the family burial, and David gets that last Inheritance. Now, if I were dying and within the throes of death, no casual conversation could be had. So what is David saying if he were talking to Jesus? Jesus, I'm so close. Dad's been dead 11 months and 13 days. Give me 17 more days, Jesus, and I'll cash in on that last portion of the inheritance. Then I'll follow you. And people will do that. You know, I really, once I get that much money, I'll really follow Jesus. Once I get get settled, then I'll follow Jesus. Once I really get the right house and the right wife and the right kids. Hey, maybe if you get the right wife, she won't be right the day you want to go to church. That's usually the way that works. And the reason I say that is, is that if you're waiting for perfect situations, you're never going to follow Jesus. And that's what he knows. And what he says is, choose what inheritance you really want. If you're going to side with the tent side, you're going to take a temporary inheritance like the tent. But if you're going to go with the permanent things that I do, Jesus speaking, you're going to go with the impermanent inheritance that I offer. Which one are you waiting on? Are we waiting on the Lord? Are we waiting for our lucky star to cash in so that somehow if we can cash in the lottery ticket, maybe then we'll follow Jesus? Jesus is Don't wait for that. Choose your inheritance now because what he knows is that if our heart is really in this world, we will never make our home in him because we'll want the world to like us. We'll want the world to cheer us. We'll want the world to want us. And if you live that way, you will never, ever make your home in Jesus because you can't do both. And he knows it. And if we're honest, you do too. So how do we close this? Well, let me ask you. Are you willing first to let Jesus make his home in you? He died on that cross. As Isaiah prophesied, he bore your sins, all your wrongdoing, all your filth. He took it upon himself voluntarily. Nobody else would even think to volunteer, but he chose it anyways. And he took it because the only way to move in is to move that out first. So he paid for it. He paid for all the filth and muck and regret and scars you've caused yourself inside of you. And there, he paid for it. And just like Scripture promised, he rose again to offer a new life. We saw it with Peter's mother-in-law. She was raised to serve. And Jesus, even to this day, we read, lives to intercede for us. But that's half the story, right? Letting Jesus in is saying, all right, I'm glad to take the cross. But being in Jesus is living the resurrection. The part that says, I want to live a resurrected life now. I want to live in you. Which means, by the way, my allegiance is now to him, not to this world. That's what it means. And what it means is that this world will be a place, a den of thieves. That's why I see Jesus being so upset when he finally comes home to his own house and finds it to be so, and calls it a den of thieves. He's like, that's the world. That should not look like my house. So let me ask you, what choice are you going to make today? If you've never accepted the gift of Jesus, I'm going to give you that choice. If you have accepted the gift of Jesus, I'm going to invite you to take it that step farther, if you haven't, and say, you know what, I really have been living for the tent, and not for the occupant. What are you going to do today? That's the choice you need to make, beloved. But it's a choice nonetheless. But I love you enough to give you it. You pray with me.